So our next presentation on managing substance use disorders, opioids, alcohol, and stimulants will be given by Dr. Sandra Springer, a professor of medicine at Yale University. Thank you. And again, it's really an honor to be here, so thanks for inviting me, and thank you all for being here. So I could give over an hour talk on each of these different substances, but I won't do that today. Uh, these are my disclosures and the learning objectives you have in your syllabus. So I'm going to briefly, and, and I mean briefly, uh, discuss uh, the current um, drug overdose epidemics and how those are impacting actually new epidemics across the country. And then why it is so important for all of us, no matter what you do, in what field you are in. It could be HIV, emergency room, surgery, cardiology, et cetera, in terms of identifying substance use disorders for our population who are at risk for HIV and living with HIV. And how you can actually treat individuals instead of just referring, but if you have to, refer, and it's really, really important to do so. And then I'll end with the recommendations that we now have in the new guidelines in the International AIDS Society USA guidelines that were published in um, December of 2022 on substance use disorders and HIV. So as you all know, uh, we're still uh, in the midst of a current drug overdose epidemic in this country, and there really is not yet any end in sight, sadly. This is just showing you opioid overdose deaths, and this is from 2001 to 2021. And the key is uh, illicitly manufactured uh, synthetic opioids, fentanyl, that are driving overdose deaths in this population. And it just really um, has been starting to increase around 2013. You know, originally we had the prescription opioid epidemic in the late 1990s, followed by black tar heroin coming from Mexico, and then quickly, um, uh, really, just uh, synthetic opioids have overtaken that. To the point in just from 2020 to 2021, we have had over 107,000 deaths in the United States from drug overdoses. As a 22% increase in just that one year period in synthetic overdoses, and the largest um, age group was actually 65 and older, which is actually quite striking we've had a reduction in about 33% in heroin overdose deaths. You just really can't find heroin on the streets. It's mainly synthetic opioids. In addition, we can't, uh, can't have this talk without understanding stimulants actually impacting overdose deaths on their own can cause overdose as well as obviously in combination with other opioids. But look at, um, again, since 2013, a, a marked increase in cocaine in blue and then psychostimulants, mainly methamphetamine. A 33% increase in overdose deaths from methamphetamine and amphetamine derivatives. These uh, substances, as we know from the early HIV epidemic, right, can increase risk of HIV. Um, since the uh, Austin, uh, Indiana, Scott County, Indiana opioid-related uh, um, uh, HIV epidemic, um, uh, uh, color-coded in red here, occurred in 2015 that was related to a prescription opioid, oxymorphone. We've seen several new epidemics across the country, and this is not an exhaustive list, just identifying some of them, 
occurring among in individuals who are injecting heroin in the past, fentanyl and methamphetamine, in Medicaid and non-Medicaid expansion states, and associated not just with injection drug use, but also with condomless sexual intercourse. In addition, as you know, there's acute hepatitis C infections occurring, and also our hospitals, and I'm an ID doc, and I'm sure all of you have seen increases markedly in other infections related to injection drug use, including endocarditis and septic arthritis and epidural abscesses. So this is just a summary slide, but we, we really are well, it's well known that all substances, and actually there's some data on nicotine, increase the likelihood of risk of acquiring HIV. Um, and then among individuals who have HIV, substance use ongoing can interfere with the HIV continuum of care, obviously interfere possibly with adherence to antiretroviral therapy leading to a higher viral load, and not only obviously mor morbidity and mortality to the individual, but from a public health standpoint, if we cannot achieve viral suppression in this patient population, there's an increased risk of obviously transmission to those who are um, not infected if they partake in high-risk behaviors. So when we think about the ending the HIV epidemic plan with the main goal to reduce new infections by 90 percent by 2030, we really need to consider how we're going to integrate um, substance use disorder identification and treatment in this population. When we look at some of the older uh, the data from the CDC and look at where are we in those individuals who have identified a risk category such as injection drug use, and this is the um, 2018 data from the CDC looking at the blue columns of viral suppression rates. Um, we see that we're far from 100 percent. We're seeing 50 to 60, maybe 65 percent in populations. So we have a long way to go. So I'm going to start with a case. Um, this is a uh, 40, oops, sorry. 46-year-old um, man who was admitted to the hospital with fever, chills, and back pain, found to have methicillin staph aureus, bacteremia, endocarditis, epidural abscess, and HIV, and he also had hepatitis C as well. We started antimicrobials, pain management with morphine. He also saw surgery for his epidural abscess and initiation of antiretroviral therapy. You identified um, that he has opioid use disorder, so what's the next best step? A, refer him to a methadone clinic on discharge. B, offer him uh, buprenorphine, naloxone. C, describe, uh, prescribe long-acting naltrexone, or none of the above. He's still on morphine for pain control. So there's a poll. And there's music. It's all good. I don't think my timer started, so I'm really get the 30 full minutes done. <laughs> all right. So yay, it sounds like you guys are really um, uh, know about this topic, and it's awesome to see. Uh, to really initiate treatment for his opioid use disorder with buprenorphine-naloxone combination tablet, um, uh, it's a critical moment, a reachable moment that unfortunately many of us do not uh, really utilize in patients who are in the hospital setting to offer them an effective form of treatment. Um, referring to methadone upon discharge, uh, unfortunately, as we know, many people may not have access to methadone programs, and without effective treatment on board, he's, this person's at high risk of overdose if he um, relapses. Long-acting naltrexone, extended-release naltrexone, possible option, um, but he is uh, currently on pain control, and so it, it, this would um, 
cause uh, withdrawal quickly. So this is just uh, the whole point of this is the idea of um, screening. And with screening, we want to be able to, uh, if we do identify somebody, to quickly offer them uh, intervention, a treatment. So SBIRT, we've heard about. I actually mean not just referral, but actual treatment. But if you can't treat, knowing who you can refer to in that moment to help you. This has been effective in obviously emergency rooms, jails, prisons that I also do work with, harm reduction programs. And importantly, we can do this in hospitals and your HIV programs and, and other things. These are the um, diagnostic statistical manual, uh, fifth edition diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder. You know, it's um, considered the Bible for psychologists and psychiatrists and how to diagnose substance use as well as other mental health um, conditions. And I just list them. There's 11 criteria. Um, we no longer talk about abuse or dependence. It's just a continuum of substance use disorder. And you can um, put in whatever substance it is. Right here I have opioids. And the key I wanted you to uh, understand is it's current or history. And uh, two or more symptoms of these 11 indicate they have a substance use disorder. And the severity is incredibly important. So it defines mild, moderate, and severe based on the number of symptoms. And the reason why that's important is because our treatments for opioid use disorder, our medication treatments, are FDA approved for moderate to severe opioid use disorder. So you want to know that before you see them. This is just a list of some of the screening tools that you could use in your EHR or however you want to administer them. I just wanted to highlight the NIDA, National Incident on Drug Abuse um, Assist, uh, which is available. It's free, um, and you can put it in your electronic medical record, and it can identify the severity of any substance use disorder. Um, and then there's others, obviously, and I'll just um, talk about the rapid opioid dependency screen briefly. This is just how one would do it. It's a quick question, NIDA quick screen, and then if they admit to ever using prescription opioids for non-medical reasons or what we used to term as illegal drugs once, it would automatically um, uh, revert to the full assist. And you can get the full, and I'm not going to go through it all, but you can, uh, you can get severity and the type of substance use. I am putting this up not just for a shameless plug on my behalf, but I do, um, it's a rapid opioid dependency screen that I created a long time ago for specifically non-clinicians, anyone uh, to use to rapidly diagnose what used to be called opioid dependence is now consistent with moderate to severe opioid use disorder to rapidly be able to provide buprenorphine, and now we use long-acting buprenorphine, um, naltrexone, in the moment when you need it. And so we started this out with jails and prisons, and now use it in hospitals and everything. We did just validate a new measure for uh, DSM-5 that's currently um, undergoing evaluation in a journal. Um, these are the current effective FDA-approved medications in the United States to treat opioid use disorder. The bottom line, they all work. They all reduce craving. They all reduce death from overdose. And importantly, reduce HIV risk behaviors. And I will show you some data about buprenorphine and extended-release naltrexone that can improve HIV treatment outcomes, importantly, viral suppression. Um, the key things, as you know, methadone, 
We can't prescribe unless we are in a, a licensed opioid treatment program, um, but buprenorphine and extended release naltrexone you can prescribe in your clinic. Uh, yay, there's no X waiver limitations anymore, so anyone with a controlled substance license can prescribe buprenorphine. Um, and there's multiple formulations, including an implant that lasts six months, and now a subcutaneous injection in the abdomen that lasts one month. Um, and then the most important thing is you can prescribe them, as I said. Uh, buprenorphine and methadone can be used to treat opioid withdrawal, as well as comorbid pain, um, because they're opioids. But extended release naltrexone, because it's an antagonist, cannot uh, obviously treat that because it's a, it blocks the opioid receptors. It's like a long-acting naloxone. So one of the things uh, you need to know and is whether that patient is at risk for withdrawal or going into withdrawal in order to start buprenorphine. Um, and uh, this is just not meant for you to really see right now, but it's the clinical opioid withdrawal scale. You can Google it and put it on. It's like the CWA for alcohol. And it will tell you if your patient's currently in withdrawal, and then in the red tell you the, the level of symptoms. If somebody is actively using, um, they are at risk for going into withdrawal, and we usually wait until they're in withdrawal, which can happen really quickly, um, and then institute buprenorphine treatment. The other patient population are those who have a history of opioid use disorder but not currently using, and they won't be going into withdrawal, but you may want to initiate treatment to prevent relapse. So for me, that might be patients I'm coming, that are coming out of prison and jail, um, and you, can, you wouldn't need to see withdrawal. I won't have time to go into all of how to do this, but it, all I can say is it's not difficult, it's easy. And it's one of the most rewarding things you can do for a patient is to take somebody who's actually actively going through severe withdrawal, give them a form of treatment, and within minutes actually see them feel much better. Um, so sublingual buprenorphine, this used to be how we used to do it, three, uh, take three days, slowly go up on buprenorphine. Um, but the reality is now with fentanyl, actually rapidly initiating buprenorphine and some, getting upwards of 24 milligrams is really um, the best thing to do. It has a ceiling effect. You don't have to go up beyond really 24 milligrams. It occupies over 98% of the opioid receptors. Um, and uh, it's, it's just important to know. I also don't have time to go into this too much and I would be happy to um, at another date. But in those like our patient that we just discussed who are on long-acting opioids, maybe for pain control or have but were started on methadone perhaps, you can actively, instead of waiting till they get off of the, the substance, uh, off of the long-acting opioid and starting buprenorphine, you can use a low-dose buprenorphine initiation while they're on a long-acting opioid. Some, and some, uh, it's been called the modified Bernese method and there's other methods. Um, and you can do this safely in the hospital or actually in the outpatient, outpatient setting. These, this is just a study that we're doing right now, and I'm just referring you to the references, uh, including how you can actually do that, and then also initiating long-acting form of uh, buprenorphine injectable form. Uh, the other point I want to make is there's no reason to delay treatment. There's no reason to wait and have your clinic have a counselor on board or behavioral management in order to start medication treatment. There's no reason that you have to do an in-depth evaluation with EKGs, liver function tests, 
uh, every a detailed psychiatric evaluation, you should at some point be able to do all of those things, but the key is initiating treatment so you can reduce craving, reduce use, and therefore hopefully save this person's life. A uh, recent study that was just out this week, I think, showed a 62% reduction in mortality from initiating buprenorphine. I mean, that should send chills. Like, why would we not provide that treatment to individuals? Um, this is just a couple of studies. This one and the next one that I'm going to show about the impact potentially that you can have not only in reducing opioid use and death from overdose, which is pretty good, but also in our patients who have HIV, um, helping those individuals stay on treatment improve the likelihood of achieving and maintaining viral suppression. So this was a study we did a long time ago, right after the FDA approved buprenorphine to be used by persons like myself and non-licensed treatment programs, and was in individuals with HIV coming out of prison and jail with a history of opioid use disorder, and asking them, would you like to start buprenorphine to prevent relapse on your top um, time of release? And the primary outcome was looking at HIV viral suppression at less than 50 copies per milliliter at six months post-release. Again, it was a non-randomized control trial. And in green, those individuals who started buprenorphine and stayed on buprenorphine had a higher, uh, statistically higher percentage of viral suppression compared to those who did not start. Then we did the quintessential double-blind placebo-controlled trial, evaluating the first form of injectable treatment for opioid use disorder at that time, which was extended-release naltrexone, same population, and again found that when we initiated treatment, we improved their likelihood of viral suppression, um, which was statistically significantly improved. So here's another question. Um, I'm going to shift gears slightly just to make one point, and this is an individual who is diagnosed with HIV and opioid use disorder, and there's some concerns about, from his point of view, uh, um, initiating both an integrase inhibitor-based treatment for his antiretroviral therapy and opioid use disorder treatment. He's worried about that. So questions are, um, if recommending an integrase inhibitor-based regimen, concurrently with buprenorphine, which strategy would you use to manage potential concerns for drug-drug interactions? Reduce buprenorphine dose if using with L-vitegravir and cobicistat, increase dolutegravir to twice a day. If you're using it with buprenorphine, increase buprenorphine dose if using with BIC or dolutegravir, or no dose adjustments are needed. And then we'll do the poll. And I'm probably going to fly through this because... Uh, so I might answer it because there's another for time. Yay. So you're right. So you don't know. So, yeah, absolutely there's no concerns or interactions with buprenorphine. I could put a slide up here for hepatitis C, DAAs either. And the bottom line is don't withhold treatment for opioid use disorder when you're managing these symptoms, uh, other diseases. Alcohol. Um, again, I could do a whole other talk on alcohol, but a bottom line is alcohol. Is, uh, increased alcohol use disorders are higher in, this, in our population and associated with significant morbidity and mortality. So you should be screening for alcohol use. And I'm telling you, this is just a single question. It's on the NIAAA, National Institute on Alcohol Abuse, Alcoholism, um, uh, a recommended screening question. Just one question. Do you sometimes drink beer, wine, or alcohol? And if yes, how many times in the past year? 
And it's just, and one day, five or more drinks if you're a man, or four or more drinks in a woman, just one day. That's considered potentially hazardous or harmful drinking. All you have to do is ask that question. And you can reflex to another free um, uh, screening tool, which is the Audit C. Or, or you could do a full audit, which is 10 items, which gives you severity. And this is, as you can see, and in your syllabus, um, gives you a score based on if you're a man or a woman and determines hazardous or harmful drinking. The other point I just wanted to make about when you're screening for alcohol use disorder, we do want to offer medications, and there's no increased risk in our patient population with HIV. I've published on this, and, and so have others. Naltrexone, other treatments don't increase liver toxicity. And you really want to talk to them about reducing their drinking. It doesn't need to be abstinence. Um, and also assess for prior se severity of alcohol withdrawal. If they've had delirium or seizures, then you can't treat it in the outpatient setting. They need to go to an inpatient setting to reduce the risk of death. And then, of course, other behavioral treatments are very effective. And these are the four FDA-approved medications for alcohol use disorder that we have. Oral naltrexone and the long-acting form of naltrexone are currently considered the best treatments. Um, but uh, also a campersate, which you could use in someone who's on buprenorphine. Problem is it has to be taken three times a day in two tablets. And then there's disulfiram antabuse, which has the negative effects and needs to be monitored more carefully. This is just another study that we did just pointing out the idea that if you also inter, um, integrate alcohol use disorder treatment with HIV, you can also improve HIV treatment outcomes. So again, this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial initiating extended-release naltrexone in people with HIV and alcohol use disorders before they were released from prison. And again, we, we saw that those who were on the extended-release naltrexone had improved viral suppression compared to those in placebo. I'm going to shift gears uh, to stimulants, and this is, um, we have a gentleman who has a, a opioid use disorder and HIV. He's doing well. You gave him a medication treatment for opioid use disorder, buprenorphine, but now he's uh, shifted his occasional stimulant use to uh, multiple um, injections. So what is the appropriate next step? A, stop his buprenorphine. <laughs> he doesn't need it anymore. He's not using. B, stop his um, uh, buprenorphine and offer him contingency management. C, switch his treatment to extended release naltrexone, or continue his um, medication treatment for his opioid use disorder and offer contingency management. And for time, I'm going to just uh, fly through here. Yay. So why would we stop his buprenorphine, right? It's working. He's not using opioids, and it's not going to treat his stimulants, right? That's not its point. But yes, contingency management is the right so I already talked about this, a way to screen for stimulant use, use the same NIDA assist. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately there's no FDA-approved med effective medications for stimulant use disorder yet, and actually the best treatment is a behavioral form of treatment, treatment which is contingency management that you can use in your um, setting using incentivized type of system but also offer other harm reduction tools, including syringe services, drug testing, and naloxone because of the contaminated uh, stimulant supply. And then I just wanted to briefly mention xylazine. Xylazine is now in, uh, in our Northeast in Connecticut and pretty much all, the majority of our drug supplies, and you've probably read about it or having the same issue. It's a non-opioid. It was an analgesic for in veterinary medicine. 
And the symptoms of xylazine overdose look very similar to opioid overdose, but they're not reversed by naloxone. So really um, teaching our patients to go slow, go alone, uh, or don't, don't use alone, test their drug supply if they can, um, and also still offer naloxone if they do look like they overdose. And then xylazine also is associated with skin ulcerations. I think the, the last thing I wanted to say, and we do talk about this in our guidelines, is really thinking about this population has a lot of other um, uh, concerns, including transportation access, lack of housing, other substance use disorders, um, mental health, legal issues. And so we really need to think about how we can bring these treatments and services to them, thinking about community health workers, NAP care, patient navigators, mobile health care services, partnering with our pharmacists. And also really considering some of these long-acting forms of PrEP, antiretroviral therapy, just like we have long-acting opioid use disorder treatments, we should be offering them to our, our patients uh, too and helping them stay on them. All of these uh, recommendations that I just recommended are um, now in the new IAS USA treatment guidelines that came out in December, um, which uh, Alan Eaton and myself co-led with uh, Carlos Del Rio and Michael Sag uh, on the substance use disorder group. Um, so we're really excited that they're in there. And I'll end there, so thank you. <laughs> Uh, question. Before oh. start, I, again, let's encourage everyone to write your questions and please step up to the mic. We want to oh. see you and hear from you. Yeah, thanks for thanks. asking this. Someone says, please clarify, doesn't buprenorphine have abuse potential? And once a month buprenorphine, is this better? So two really good questions. So buprenorphine, typically it is a partial opioid. It's a partial um, opioid antagonist. And I think you're referring to potential diversion uh, people aren't using buprenorphine necessarily in the community to get high. There are much better things out there, including fentanyl, it's easier to get. What we are seeing are that people are purchasing buprenorphine so that they can treat their withdrawal. So they might go buy a tablet or on the, so they don't go into withdrawal because they can't maintain their, um, their uh, treat, the, the opioid or can't find it. Uh, the question about once a month buprenorphine, so we um, now sublocate is the only currently FDA-approved treatment. There's another one coming out, Brixati. Uh, we don't know yet if it's better. I'm, I'm doing two, two, one trial right now that's comparing long-acting buprenorphine to, to sublingual buprenorphine. We don't know if one's better than the other, um, but potentially an adherence um, advantage, right? Similar to how we've talked about long-acting cabotegravir um, and, and cabotegravir well pivorine, so we don't know yet. Hey, Carlos. Hey, Sandy. Thank you. This, was, this is great. Could you talk a little bit about something that, uh, to me, is, is really important, is, is the, the very high risk of dying of an overdose when you get released from prison and why mm -hmm. that's a critically important period to, to, to actually start uh, you know, medication-assisted therapy? Yeah, thanks. So the number one cause of death for all individuals who are released from prison or jail is overdose, regardless of how long they've been incarcerated. It could be years. Craving occurs quickly, relapse, um, and, and now we have fentanyl especially on board. Um, so yeah, some of the things that we've done in the past and others are really trying to help initiate treatment for opioid use disorder before individuals get released, as well as, of course, 
um, opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution, not prescription, give it to them before they get out, and also treat, um, train their partners. We have a current trial right now of comparing extended release naltrexone to long-acting buprenorphine and people coming out of prison and jail. Josh Lee here at NYU is uh, the contact PI. So we're actually evaluating if one of those treatments started before they got released from prison will improve um, retention and treatment and reduce overdose deaths, but yeah. Dr. Springer, I have two questions. Oh, great. There's a question oh I can't see, sorry. Yes. Hi. Uh, I practice out of the Philadelphia area. We're seeing a lot of xylazine withdrawal. Can you speak to that and things as clinicians that we can do to help with the xylazine withdrawal period? Yeah, that's Let, is it a repeat the question. Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, so she was asking about they're seeing a lot of xylazine withdrawal. Is that correct? And is there any uh, recommendations about treatment of xylazine withdrawal? Yeah, so it's an evolving um, area right now, and uh, some people don't know they have xylazine in the drug supply. And then it, we also have patients who are actively seeking it. Um, I had just had a patient in, in the hospital who. Uh, overdosed again in the hospital on xylazine with fentanyl despite being on Suboxone. Um, and so all we can recommend right now is there's not, uh, we would treat it, recognizing it, um, treating it the same way we would say with another form of withdrawal if, if there, um, there's no medication to reverse it yet that we are aware of. I, you know, that's thing, things are, people are looking into this. Um, but making them comfortable and being aware, so, yeah. A lot of our counterparts are using clonidine right now to That's, assist yeah. symptoms. You can use that, just be aware, clonidine has a side effect of hypotension, right? And so, and one of the, uh, the problems with xylazine is it causes hypotension. So, um, I would do that in, in a monitored setting, yeah. And can you also speak to as well, I have a lot of patients that are nervous to transition from sublocate, or suboxone to sublocate. Yeah. Just some counseling around um, that, if you may. Yeah, no, uh, so uh, one of the papers I highlighted, we just published a case series of how we did that in the hospital. A patient population with severe infections, brain abscesses, epidural abscesses, endocarditis. Start, um, and you can, you can do it very safely. Uh, and we actually, in the protocol paper, uh, published in the appendix a safety, uh, how, to, how to initiate, sublocate. Um, so the sublocate uh, is, there's two, forms, 300 and 100 milligram. It's a subcutaneous injection in the abdomen and creates a nodule and has a slow release for about 30 days. Um, a lot of patients are concerned with fentanyl, though, that they might be precipitating withdrawal or having this delayed effect. We personally haven't seen that yet, um, but you have to be, uh, you know, able to monitor or help that patient out. And so sometimes craving um, withdrawal symptoms, doing a, a clinical opioid withdrawal scale assessing, are they really having withdrawal or is it potentially um, another manifestation of anxiety? But listening to them. So we do give some patients uh, buprenorphine, sublingual buprenorphine on top of their sublocate injection in the beginning um, because of the fentanyl issue. And, um, but there's a good case series out of Columbia, actually, John Mariani and Francis Levin that looked at initiating sublocate immediately in, while the patient was there in individuals who uh, were injecting fentanyl, and they did fine. So just giving it to them without doing the induction on buprenorphine. We, we have one question here related to that. Have you heard of a case or seen a report of a patient on sublocate dying from overdose? Not yet, okay. but it can happen. So um, 
Yeah, we're starting with the fentanyl. And then the problem, though, is really identifying it, what the death was due to. So is it just opioids alone? Uh, and that's really hard to tease out unless you have forensic evidence because the xylazine supply, um, plus we're seeing a lot of sedatives and benzodiazepines with that drug supply. So really, is it maybe the sublocate's working? Like in my patient population, they're not. The fentanyl, when they injected, wasn't affecting them. But then, you know, the benzodiazepines and xylazine on top of that was causing their overdose. And yeah, exactly, yeah. No, people are looking for it right now. So the other good interventions that are happening right now are uh, drug testing. Um, uh, so you can actually provide the testing for them to um, test uh, their drugs. And I'm going to shout out, you know, glad I'm in New York, um, safe injection site. You know, safe injection programs can, are very effective in reducing overdose and being available to that patient when they're ready to initiate treatment, also offer HIV testing, pre-exposure prophylaxis, hepatitis C testing, um, and uh, so, um, you know, we need more of that, and they're starting a safe injection site in Providence, so hoping that goes well. So I think those are all going to be where we're going to have to move. Two more questions. Uh, do you have guidance about long-acting PrEP and people who inject drugs? So, um, we, as we wrote in the international, uh, uh, our guidelines, you know, there is a lack, unfortunately, of long-acting PrEP studies that are occurring among people who are, in, among people who are using drugs, injecting drugs. We really need that. Um, we have been, we have a mobile health intervention that we're using in Connecticut, and actually our first patient who is unhoused uh, with uh, HIV point-of-care testing was negative, and he wanted long-acting PrEP. We were able to give that to the individual. Um, we keep coming back to him and administering it. We do need more um, studies like that, though, to, to help. And it's not just injection drug use risk, too, right? It's also condomless sexual intercourse risk that we have to be assessing in this population. So, yes, I really am hoping maybe um, we're going to hear about that. Yeah. And then comment on buprenorphine for use in depression. Um, I can say that I know I've heard anecdotally that, it, it, you know, buprenorphine can have a cognitive effect. It's a partial opioid. Um, I don't know of how it, like, uh, a specific study of buprenorphine and depression treatment, but we do have data supporting that there's no increase in depressive symptoms. But it's a plug for better mental health and mental illness identification and treatment in this population, which is a huge problem, a lot of suicidal ideation in, in, our, in, our patient, in this patient population and um, depressive and other co-occurring psychiatric symptoms. So screening and identifica identification and treatment is also key. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That was fabulous.